0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael, and with me, but not really, is Tony, Tripp, and Mo. How you guys doing, fellas?
1: What up? to in. He's got us in. In the sweatshop again.
2: Send
3: help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we are recording in separate rooms over the worldwide interwebs uh, due to some inclement weather on our recording date, so if it sounds like our voices are a little different, that's why. So, today, or actually, many moons ago, we recorded an episode called the Google episode, where we just kind of Googled little random bits of trivia and fun facts and stuff like that and just kind of brought it in and had a little bit of fun with it. So, we decided to do that again, so we've got Google, Google episode version 2.0. Yes! woo Real quick, before we get on to our Google Topics, I do want to read a couple of quick reviews from iTunes. Our friend Diesel Dozer left us a five star review titled Don't Pigeon My Hole. (laughs) He says, I love the enlightenment and entertainment that the passionate DJ crew shares with the DJ community. Keep on spinning. We have a review from Gray Squirrel titled Awesome, another five star. He says, I've been listening to this podcast for many months. It is filled with great information and has broadened my understanding of the craft. DJs of any level should give it a listen. And then from Kesset, another five-star review titled Good Stuff. He says, as a DJ of 20-plus years, it's nice to find a podcast that's not all about the EDM thing and more about actual DJing. I find that I relate to many of the topics discussed, especially now that I live in a much smaller town and do my own events. It's good to know that there's still DJs out there who care about mixing. So I just wanted to give a shout out to those guys. Thank you so much for those reviews. And please, 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 if you're listening to this, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. It really helps us on the algorithm. It helps us with feedback to know what you guys like and dislike. So by all means, if you are subscribed to us on iTunes, just take one moment and give us a quick rating and a review. it really means yeah, a lot to us.
3: Uh, thanks for the words. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah. So... The first thing that I Googled for our version two of the Google episode, I wanted to know who was the highest paid DJ in 2017.
1: I could answer that off the rib. Go for it. Uh, it would be between two, but my first guess would have to be because he has been for a while is Calvin Harris. Mm.
0: Nailed it. Yep. According to Forbes, the highest paid name on our list after the fifth consecutive year is Calvin Harris. Damn. He earned a forty-eight and a half million, roughly as much as Marshmello and the Chainsmokers combined.
1: Wow! That's I don't know. Does he still have that uh, Vegas residency? I'm pretty sure.
0: I, I do believe so. Yeah, I wonder yeah, if they hurt. also
1: tally in um, what he gets paid as a producer, songwriter. I wonder if they tally all that in. Yeah, well,
0: like I don't. That's a good point.
1: DJ gigs.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I. I'm not sure that it really specified, you know, is, uh, is this just from paid gigs or is this what they make overall? His entire uh, empire. Yeah, being that it was in Forbes, it might be kind of all-encompassing there, but... Um, Tiesto, the 48-year-old Dutch DJ who has finished in the top three every year in our list existence, continues to outpace EDM stars half his age, playing 134 gigs to a payday of $39 million. Damn, The aforementioned chain smokers follow close behind at number three with 38 million. Wow. They say the ranks of the top earning DJs reveal an unfortunate lack of diversity. Amongst the top 10, there are no women and all hail from the U.S. or Northern Europe. There is, however, a bit of a mix when it comes to age. The oldest, 49 year old David Guetta, number seven at 25 million, could easily be the father of Martin Garrix, number nine. Nineteen and a half million and a half million who just reached legal drinking age.
1: I didn't realize he was that young. Yes, sir? Sir. Oh, yeah. yeah. Another one of the the guys, um, what was his name, Mattyon, I believe? He toured with Lady Gaga a few years ago. He was only 17, 16 or 17. Like he
2: couldn't even get into the venues he was playing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, uh, those, those the kids are really, really talented, that's for sure.
0: That's insane. Any guesses as to the top fe- paid female DJ?
3: Mm. I'm going to go with Nicole.
0: Okay. Uh, wait, else wait, wait,
3: wait, 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 time out, time out. Time out. we talking like real
0: right. DJs or uh, what? No. Real? Come on, no. real
1: <laughs> shit. <laughs> do,
2: do they define real DJs?
0: They do not define it.
2: Damn,
3: say the word DJ. Um, oh, crap. Uh, it's is it still Earth. Paris Hilton then?
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, that's <laughs> About a million mean. a gig, if uh, what she says is correct. For what? Can <laughs> <laughs> she count to four? <laughs> I will say I've never seen her. She could be amazing for all I know. Any have you have you seen her, Tony?
1: No, I have not. Um, to be quite honest, um, I would I would venture to say because she sells tickets. Right. I'm not even. I don't even want to take a, take away the fact that she could be a decent DJ. Um, I really don't know, um, but she sells tickets. Bottom line.
0: And you know the thing is, even if it did kind of start out as a gimmicky cash grab thing, which you know is is easy to to kind of jump to and suspect, she's been doing it for a hot minute now. I mean, for all we know, she could be she could be really into it. Her
1: tour manager. I, I wouldn't say it was her a tour manager. Whatever that went with her, also taught her tons and tons of lessons is Endo. Uh, you know, DJ Endo, right? Okay. Yeah, okay. Right, right. Yeah, he had actually a lot of videos and he would tweet a lot, Instagram a lot, how he was giving her uh, quite a bit of lessons. So Yeah, he's a big fo- tractor cat, right? Yeah. If she, uh, if she followed his path,
0: you know, by she any stretch of the
1: imagination, one. she could be very, very good because he's, he's a solid DJ, man.
0: The next thing that I Googled, I wanted to know what was the world's first... Drum machine. It wasn't the Roland. It it, no, no. It it actually goes way, way surprisingly far back. I was thinking maybe late fifties, early sixties, but the earliest entry I found goes all the way back to nineteen thirty. Wow. And yeah, it was uh, a device called the Rhythmicon or Rhythmcon. In 1930, the avant-garde American composer and musical theorist Henry Cowell collaborated with the Russian inventor Leon Theremin, which you might recognize that name, Mm -hmm. in designing and building the remarkably innovative Rhythmicon. Cowell wanted wanted an instrument with which to play compositions involving multiple rhythmic patterns impossible for one person to perform simultaneously on acoustic keyboard or percussion instruments. So using the device's keyboard, each of 16 rhythms can be produced individually or in any combination and then a 17th key permits optional syncopation the instrument produces its percussion like sound using a system that involves light being passed through radially, radially indexed holes in a series of spinning cogwheel discs before arriving at electric photoreceptors in 1930 they were invented a photoreceptor based drum machine which i just thought was crazy Sounds
3: like something from Doc Brown like Back to the (laughs) Future. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. With the flux capacitor.
2: (laughs) That's crazy to believe that they built some sort of automated means of reproducing drum sounds like that. Right, yeah.
0: Well, the the next uh, entry I found after that goes up to 1949. It was a guy named Harry Chamberlain and uh, the device was called the Rhythmate. And this comes from Fact Magazine. It says that Though Chamberlain was first and foremost an engineer, he was also a music fan who played in an eight-piece dance band in his youth. In 1949, at the age of 47, Chamberlain treated himself to the electric organ he'd always wanted and bought himself a tape recorder so that he could send recordings of himself playing the organ to his parents. So he had sat down, at the, uh, sat down to record himself, and it says he had a eureka moment. He says, I set the tape recorder on the bench next to me. And I was putting one finger down like this, and I said, for heaven's sake, if I can put my finger down and get a Hammond organ note, why can't I get a guitar note or a trombone note and get that under the key somehow and be able to play any instrument? As long as I know how to key- play the keyboard, I could play anything. The result was the first multi-instrument keyboard, which he showed at the National Association of Music Merchants in 1956. Oh, yes, at <coughs> AM in
2: 1956. Well, I didn't know it
0: was that old. Oh, yes. Now, underneath each key was a tape-playing mechanism loaded with pre-recorded instrument sounds. When the key was pressed down, a short tape loop would be played through a speaker. His idea was later stolen by one of his own salesmen and reborn as the more famous Mellotron. But Chamberlain had not only created the world's first electromechanical polyphonic tape replay keyboard, he'd inadvertently created a very early form of sampler. Sampler, yeah. Hi. Yeah, so I actually have a sound clip of what this thing sounds like. He's kind of scrolling through the various uh, settings on it, the various loops on it. So it had 14 different little loops like that that you could play at, at various speeds. Uh, Very that come- cool. You can take it to uh, 10 years later, in 1959, there was the Wurlitzer Sideman, and this is cool. Um, This comes from Fact Magazine. While Chamberlain's tape loop technology was able to recreate real drum sounds, it was prone to degradation and malfunction. The Sideman was much different. Much like a simple music box, the Sideman's patterns were generated mechanically by a rotating disc, something that made it much more reliable than the Rhythmate. The tempo could be controlled by a slider that changed the rhythm to anything from 34 to 150 beats per minute, and if you wanted, it was possible to trigger each of the 10 drum sounds individually from a bank of buttons to the side of the control panel. So this was pretty cool. This was actually the first, the the reason I brought in several answers here was because it's one of those that kind of depends on what you consider a a drum drum machine. machine. Right. Uh,
3: Depending on the level of purist that's listening, could be like, no, this one was, no, that one was.
0: Right. This one you could actually play individual sounds independently and there was kind of like a bank of buttons on the right-hand side and you could select, oh, I want to play the hi-hat or the, you know, wood block or whatever. And so I have uh, actually a clip of this thing, too. And I want to post this one in the show notes. I wish you guys could see it. This thing is so cool. So what oh, I'm looking at show. right now, yeah, what I'm looking at right now is like, did you guys ever play with those little um, uh, race cars, the slot cars on the track? And yes. Yes. I- had the little brushed uh metal on the bottom that contacted the track yes it's kind of like that I'm looking at like a, a metal bar and it's just spinning around a disc and there's all these little tiny contacts on the disc and as it you know touches each of those little tiny contacts it's signaling to play that sound And I just, I love stuff like this because, you know, in today's age of like integrated circuits and software samplers and stuff, I look at this crazy, like belt driven brushed metal disc thing. And, and it's just so clever to me that like the mechanical means of making this thing work and all they have to do is, is make that disc spin faster or slower to adjust the tempo. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Um, Mo, you mentioned that you didn't realize that NAM went back that far. Do you know? No, I did remember? not. It does go? Oh, it was before that? Oh, yes. Uh, 40s? I was shocked. NAM was founded in 1901. Wow. Wow. I had no idea until I started looking into this uh, drum machine thing. I went, no way. And sure enough. So, <laughs> Trip, this next one's for you. What's the origin of the quote, Hip-hop air horn. I'm,
1: I'm,
3: I'm going to go with the sixth layer of fucking hell. Out. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good stuff. <laughs>
0: So, born on the B-side of a Bob Marley and the Wailers record.
3: Oh, no, don't say that.
0: The air horn sound has been associated with reggae and Jamaican dance hall music since the 60s. What was once a staple of the club scene in Jamaica has now become a global hip-hop phenomenon, thanks primarily to Luis Diaz, a.k.a. Sypha Sounds. I think it was a Hot 107 DJ. The DJ was uh, kind enough to share the story behind the massive attention grabbing sound. So I have a clip here for you. I apologize in advance because you're going to hear that sound like 800 times in this clip.
4: I didn't know it was going to be a big deal. I was just trying to make something to sound cool. You know, it's like when artists talk about, oh, they made like a song in 20 minutes and they didn't know. And then it becomes like the biggest hit of their career. Like, I hope the air is not the biggest hit of my career, but so far it's like top three. My name is Cypher Sounds, hip-hop DJ from New York City, and I popularized the air horn sound effect into a global phenomenon.
3: Oh, God.
4: (laughs) In Jamaica, in the late 70s, early 80s, they used to have these parties in in these clubs, which they called dance halls. And in that moment, everyone gets excited. They scream, they make noises, and they would hit air horns. And then it got to a point where DJs started having little samplers and have it playing it themselves. Dancehall and hip hop are basically like half brothers. DJs, especially Cool Herc, who's Jamaican, moved to, to the Bronx and would throw these parties like he used to throw in Jamaica. That whole scene moved here and that's what created hip hop. Ladies and gentlemen, it is three o'clock in New York City. Yours truly, Cypher Sales, DJ Nuff is back. So early 2000s, around 2001, 2002, I got my own show on Hot 97, Cypher Saturdays, and I wanted to sound different than all the other DJs. So I would use the air horn and a couple other Jamaican sound effects. But see, it was hard, it was hard to play sound effects like that back in the day because when you did live in a club, you would hit the air horn and make these different, I guess like rhythmic variations of how it would play. So we couldn't do that in the computer, so I had to like, make my own version. So I would just hit the button once, but it would play like it was live, which is the one that kind of like exploded. I didn't invent the air horn sound, I didn't invent the usage of it in a party. Me being on the radio, I just became the guy known for it.
0: Okay, and then they end the video with like 800 of those, so I'll, I'll spare you. <laughs> so thanks to Cypher Sounds, we now have a dedicated button on your pioneer controller trip yeah. that he can't unprogram that he can't unprogram
1: you know what I, I i wonder if that guy gets royalties every time that song or that song <laughs> listen to me every time that sound is hit
0: i don't think so he he does end the video by saying uh i didn't invent the sound i just uh brought it in and popularized it and and so on so it doesn't sound like he's ever pursued anything like that but that'd be that'd be some stuff though wouldn't it <laughs> Kind of like well, Little John
2: and his yeah yeah right.
3: right. <laughs> well, I mean, That's but it's a nickel. It, it, but if, <laughs> if the original sound, you know, was came from a B side of a Bob Marley record, then yeah. uh, he wouldn't have the rights to it anyway. But I, I guess you can't hate Bob Marley, right? Uh, no, or the Whalers. It's not, I mean, it. that, no, it's not their like, fault. It's not their fault. <laughs> so, so yeah. Thanks to this uh, little Google episode, now I know exactly who I can divert <laughs> my to hate mail to. Hate mail to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the next thing I wanted to know was, what was the very first digital DJ software? I was wondering maybe some early version of Tractor or Serato or something like that. Turns out PC DJ, which is still a thing, claims to be have been the first, goes all the way back to 1999, believe it or not, with its software titled digital 1200 sl
3: yeah, yeah. that sounds familiar I've,
0: yeah I've, I've got a little clip here uh like an old press clip here where they talk about it and uh, i'll post this in the show notes too it's actually a, a much longer video but it's uh <laughs> it's one of those like it hasn't aged well kind of videos so those are always kind of fun to watch but uh here's a little bit of the story Well, it's truly amazing. Recent innovations in digital technology have revolutionized the entertainment industry and continue to feature films soon will be downloaded from satellites rather than shipped in cans. And renting a movie uh, could well be a thing of the past.
1: Inevitably, the process of spinning records in nightclubs is also being changed. MP3 technology allows music to be downloaded from the Internet, traded by DJs, and digitally blended to render entirely new sounds from existing tracks. Welcome, and you brought John along with you today. Yes,
2: uh, John is uh, one of our premier DJs. In fact, he spun last night on VH1 um, Divas, so we're real excited, and we brought Space Opera down to show you guys. Normally your music is in a file called a wave file, and a CD is actually a file, okay? It's a data file, Mm -hmm. and it's really big. Now what MP3 did is it took it and put it on a diet. So it went from like a size 28 to a nice, sexy size 3. And so instead of having like 10 or 12 songs on a CD, you can conceivably have 200 songs in the same space now what this does for being able to move music on the internet and for performance is wonderful because you can take a computer like what we have here and this is all computer-based equipment and put 20 or 30 hours worth of music on it now no one will ever play that long but if anyone asks you hey do you have Donna Summer well guess what Let's you see, can John, find it real we? simple do we have it
0: <laughs> somewhere Donna Summer is in this massive I room. know that I heard this Technology. here we go
2: Well, one of the other problems that DJs invariably faced with uh,
0: vinyl and so forth was the dance floor. The dance floor is jumping around like crazy, and as a result, the vinyl is jumping around like crazy. Not a good thing if you're a DJ, right, John? That's right something that you want to be very careful of and this eliminates all that everything's on disc all you want (laughs) yeah exactly it does those little digits don't care they don't
3: care a bit well and also this enables you to do some real crossover work
0: yeah so it was kind of interesting to listen these guys were completely fascinated not only with the idea of the music doing all the work but the idea of mp3 files and sharing over the internet in general this was all a new concept to them right i'll I'll definitely post a link to that in the show notes it's pretty interesting to watch i really
1: love the fact how they pointed out that it doesn't jump
0: you know (laughs) i worry about the records (laughs) (laughs) jumping. i love that yeah
1: (laughs) i love my records i love my turntables and all but really like that's as a as a dj you know in the early 90s when it was just a fold-out table you know yeah. Oh yeah. No, kidding. Was, um, no kidding. You're in the middle of a great mix. Somebody bumps the table, mm-hmm. or just the bass over you know overpowers, comes through the needle and skips something. That was just yeah.
3: Or some drunk and asshole like falls into a speaker stand, and then all of a sudden here comes the monitor down on the mixer, and it, uh, wait, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and everybody looks at you, <laughs> as a DJ.
3: Like a right, like <laughs> I'm the one who did this.
1: Right, right. my shit was on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that one got me wondering, what was the first MP3 file ever made?
2: Oh, I know this one. So one actually claims that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, well, I, I think I know this one, right? Because, I mean, like, Tech Geek Lore says that it was, um, oh, what? what's her face? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Suzanne Vega, Tom Steiner. Really? Yep. Yeah.
0: That's the one. Really?
3: Is it really? Yep. Yeah, because, um, it, somebody had said that it basically the way that it was like engineered, it, the sound engineering, the recording, like the the final mixing and mastering of it is like one of the like premier uh, examples of a, a a perfect like mix down or master of a song.
0: Huh. I never that knew is. that. The audio engineer's name was Karl Heinz Brandenburg, and it says he used Suzanne Vega's a cappella version of Tom's Diner to tune the compression system, playing the track before and after compression was applied to tell whether the MP3 sounded good enough. He figured Vega's song would be a tough track to compress, as it was already favored by audiophiles, and would be a good test for whether MP3 was listenable. He got a copy of the song and put it through the newly created MP3, but instead of the warm human voice, there are monstrous distortions as though The Exorcist had somehow gotten into the system, shadowing uh-huh. every phrase. They spent months refining it, running Tom's Diner through the system over and over again with modifications until it came through clearly. Do you think so those an, guys
3: can, like, stand to even hear it now? Right here in their sleep. PTSD or something? Like, they start twitching. <laughs>
0: yeah it says when an mp3 player compresses music by anyone from Courtney Love to Kenny G it's replicating the way that Brandenburg heard Suzanne Vega do you guys remember the first mp3 that you downloaded I do what was yours mine was um, crazy by Britney Spears (laughs) (laughs) it was sent to me by an internet friend and he was like check this out I'm gonna send you a song I said no you're not you no, know, trust me, I'm going to send you a song. Uh, okay, and that's what it was. And I, it was, you know, like three and a half meg. And I was like, how did you do that? And thus I discovered MP3. Uh,
3: my, my first foray into MP3s was actually Napster. My best okay. friend was on leave and came to visit. And I had no idea about any of that stuff. <clears throat> and he downloaded Napster, got me all hooked up. And then we just started downloading stuff. So I don't know what the first one was, but just out of principle, I'm going to say it was the entire Metallica Black album. Fuck you, Barsal, <laughs> Rick. <laughs>
2: what about you, Tony? Please don't sue me. <laughs> I
1: don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't belong to any of those sites. For me? Um, No, to be honest, I I couldn't recall.
2: For me, I don't remember where I got it from. Probably some sort of dirty peer-to-peer site. (laughs) But it was Kyle's mom's a bitch in D minor
3: (laughs) from South Park. (laughs) 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 Nice.
0: (laughs) Boy, that really frames it around uh, the time time frame, doesn't it? Yes, it does. (laughs) Well, what was the world's most expensive MP3 player? Any guesses to an amount?
1: 100000 What was it made out
0: of? Uh, amongst other things, 24 karat gold. Like it
2: was <laughs> solid gold or it was like plated?
0: Uh, if it's 24 solid. karat,
1: I don't think it's plated.
3: Wait, was- we're talking something off the shelf or is this like some kind of customized ordeal? Or-
2: this has to be custom. Like a it's- Gucci edition or something?
0: It's actually an iPod Touch. It's a 24-karat gold Supreme Fire Edition sold by Stuart Hughes. What? It's called the most exclusive iPod on the planet. Officially, the world's most expensive iPod. The whole body body was reformed using 125 grams of solid 24-karat gold with a beautiful rear Apple logo from 21 grams of gold, which houses 53 flawless diamonds. The front outer section has been set with 124 flawless diamonds. The main navigation buttons have 28 diamonds of the same quality set in 16 grams of gold, all which surround its glorious single diamond of two carats.
1: I will retract my $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the total <laughs> weight of diamonds.
0: Double it. The total weight of diamonds on the iPod is a huge 75 carat. The technical spec is 64 gig, which seems kind of lame, doesn't it? With FaceTime, retina display, and HD video, the iPod Supreme Fire is a limited edition masterpiece with only two others to be made. More luxury designs of this product can be seen on our other website, goldstriker.co.uk. So this is like probably com- around 2008,
2: 2009
0: maybe? Uh, I'm not sure. I, th- I think it's for sale now. or oh. At least there's a website for it now. But the price comes in at $285,000. <laughs> Keep it.
1: Yeah, for 64 gig, yeah, you can have it.
0: <laughs> the next runner-up I found was called the Douglas J Presidential MP3 Player, and it comes in at 44 grand. Announced by Jonathan Fiano, 20-year-old proprietor of the Asian premium brand company Mengduo Limited, since launching the jewel-encrusted, gold-encased player in 2007, it looks like Fiano went nowhere fast with his business brainwave, admitting to receiving exactly zero orders thus far.
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Imagine that. So, speaking of most expensive, what was the most expensive album ever sold? So, I I did a top three on this one.
3: When you say expensive, you mean like uh, like like auction or pr- something to produce or
0: no no to yeah uh, ever sold by an individual.
3: Oh, or, or by, by a
0: group, group or. or- but yeah, like a, like a physical piece of media. Okay, gotcha. So coming in at number three, Elvis Presley, "My Happiness." Jack White of the White Stripes bought the test pressing of the first ever recording at auction in December 2015, using it to make a limited edition facsimile, which he which he duly released through Third Man Records, complete with all the pops, scratches, and even a brown a plain brown paper bag as a sleeve, because he said. That's what Elvis would have walked out of Sun Records with.
1: No, you're kidding.
0: That's 300 grand. Number two, the Beatles' White Album, $790,000. For years, Beatles drummer Ringo Starr was known to own the very first copy of the band's self-titled double album from 1968, since the records were printed with serial numbers in sequence, and Starr's copy bears the number 0000001. He eventually sold his copy at Julian's auction in the US in December of 2015 again to an unnamed buyer along with his famous Ludwig drum kit which was bought by the uh, owner of the Indianapolis Colts Jim Irsay for a whopping 2.2 million
3: dollars.
0: The number one is not a piece of wax and this was actually kind of recent news so you guys will probably remember the Once Upon a Time in Shaolin by the Wu Tang Clan. Hey, Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. By far, the most expensive record ever sold is this 2015 album by Wu-Tang, of which this is the one and only copy ever produced. The record comes with a contract which stipulates that the buyer may not attempt to sell or make money for the record for 100 years, although the owner may release the album for free if they wish to. The buyer turned out to be the controversial Turing Pharmaceutical CEO, Martin Shkreli. Shkreli! You all know as (laughs) PharmaPro. has become something of a pariah in America thanks to his company's buyout of an anti-HIV drug and its subsequent price hike of more than 5000%. He paid the asking price of 2 million dollars to become its owner, which didn't go down too well with some of his fans, some of its fans. Shkreli proceeded to make himself even more unpopular when he refused to release the album for free, although he's released snippets in YouTube videos since then. But while none of this is heartwarming news, you might like to console yourself with the fact that the Wu-Tang included a clause, which might be the best thing anyone has ever had written into a legally binding contract. This is awesome. The buying party also agrees that at any time during the stipulated 88-year period, the seller may legally plan and attempt to execute one heist or caper to steal back Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, which, if successful, would return all ownership rights to the seller said heist or caper can only be undertaken by currently active members of the Wu-Tang Clan and or actor Bill Murray with no legal repercussions damn <laughs> i
3: love it
0: <laughs> so that is the coolest clause i've ever heard put into a legal document
3: <laughs> <laughs> right yeah that's really dude yeah he's not a good he's not a good human no not at all no
0: no ugh. have you ever watched any like interviews with that guy yes they're uh <laughs> Yeah, they don't make you feel any better
3: no <laughs> no no like just even his mannerisms like just make your skin crawl like just ugh. it's
0: like he revels in being the worst person ever yeah. right so the first ever dj mixer according to the thump, thump it was the pioneer first
3: pioneer dj m500 <laughs> no, just seems like it <laughs> <laughs> right right
0: Uh, Actually, the first real DJ mixer was designed by Alex Rosner in 1971 for the Haven Club. It was never commercially available, but it was called Rosie, and it featured the ability to mix two turntables, a microphone input, and had the ability to assign either of those sound sources to a headphone output. Nice. Now, the the first widely available DJ mixer was called the Bozak CMA-102DL. That hit the market later in that same year. It was a rotary design. It featured a bass and treble EQ, panning, and crisp sound that elevated mixing in clubs to a new standard. Um, And just as a kind of a bonus tidbit, the first mixer to incorporate a horizontal crossfader was the GLI PMX 7000. It was uh, considered a poor man's Bozak, and it was like the first mixer aimed at the sort of everyday DJ.
3: Nice. Nice. Well, between the two, I would have taken the one with the crossfader. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, Mr. Dingo, I think you brought in uh, something about uh, sampling.
2: Yeah, so if you haven't listened to the first Google episode, Dave included a little piece where he talked about the most sampled songs. So to follow up to that, we are going to talk about the 10 most sampled artists. And this is according to WhoSampled.com. So, so starting off, go ahead. I
0: was just going to say, do does it correlate with the, um, the samples or the
2: samples that we listen to? Uh,
0: I mean, I'm sure there's some crossover, but there's I didn't crossover, know if it was but a lot different. Um, but for me,
2: when I looked this up, there were some samples on there that I didn't realize that these groups were sampled as much as they are. Okay. So far away. All right. So starting off at number 10, and you guess it all. Not 10, probably not be so simple, but um, it goes with Jay Z.
0: Really? No. I definitely would not have guessed that.
2: No, I didn't either. That's why I said some of these, I was kind of surprised.
3: Um, I think one of the things that for Jay Z to actually make it onto this uh, top 10 for this website, though, Um, Is that he's been pretty good about like putting out like acapellas and other types of like uh, side Uh, projects and stuff like that. So like um, anytime you can get like a a studio mix or a a studio acapella, those things just go off like fire. And when you've got an MC like Jay-Z, that's pretty slick, too, because, you know, his a lot of his raps are just pure fire so if you can take those and overlay them onto other mixes or other and or use them in your own tracks that that's pretty slick so uh, i i'm surprised to see somebody that modern on here but um i'm not totally surprised that it's him
2: well there's a couple that are more contemporary um in our circles but yeah, I think uh, of the of the top ten list that I have in front of me, he is the most modern, I believe. So, moving on to number nine, the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson.
3: Really, okay, number nine? Yeah, I thought he I'm would be. I'm surprised a he's lower. that low. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That's what I was going to say. Coming in at number eight, Cool in the Gang.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: Number seven. This one was a bit of a shocker for me. The notorious BIG, Mr. Christopher Wallace.
3: Oh, I'm not surprised at all. Ever since him and Tupac died, like both of them have been sampled to death. And yeah. I, I've said it before on this show I don't care what it is. You put a biggie sample in it, and it's, it's automatically it's on my playlist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sucker for it, man. Yeah.
2: And then moving on to number six, keeping it in New York, Run D.M.C.
0: Nice, Thankful. Mm-hmm. Cool.
2: All right, I'm cracking the top five. Uh, Beside, and this is one that we talked about in the most sampled. Uh, a lot of it's a French group. But a lot of people won't recognize it, but I think we'll have Dave put this in the show notes. And the one particular song, "Change the Beat" female version. As soon as you start playing it, listening to it, you'll think about of about two dozen songs that you've heard these samples.
0: Yep, I got, I just caught up now when you said that.
2: All right. Moving up to number four, one of trips, all times favorite Lynn Collins.
3: Hmm. That's right. Yeah. Think man. Uh, the think break, think,
2: think break. Yep.
3: Yep. And then
2: top three. So coming in at number three, public enemy. Okay. Really? Yeah, I had to think about that one, but they actually are simple quite a bit.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, think of every time that you've heard, yeah, boo! <laughs> <You're right. laughs>
0: like, man, number three, though, that, that surprised me. Well, yeah, the, yeah. but but no, once you
2: hear what number two and number one are, you'll be like, okay. <laughs> so number two, which I found a bit ironic because I thought this would actually be number one, is the... Winston's? Manga. Yep, the Winston's.
3: Got oh okay. Yep.
2: And with the amen break is what's going to do all the damage there. Right. And number one, any guesses?
0: Ooh, ooh, uh, James Brown.
3: Yep. Oh god. Soul Brother number one. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like out of uh, all of that, like man, I'm, I, I would not have put anybody else over him. I don't think. No way. Yeah. Maybe. I would have thought
2: the Winstons would have been number one.
3: No, 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 no. Really? Yeah, James Brown for sure. Okay. Because remember the Winston's, you know their their number one claim to fame there was exactly that, just the Amen break, break? break. Yeah. Like, the break. James actually, Brown's entire catalog is like sampled all over creation.
1: Actually, uh, um, Public Enemy they were on the list, right? Did you say Public yeah. Enemy? Yeah. They used mm-hmm. um, they used James Brown. Um, What's that? Was it fight?
2: Fight the power? That was James Brown. That was Funky Drummer. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Clyde, that that Clyde Stubblefield, funky drummer.
1: Yeah.
3: It's so wait, does that involved. mean that this list is like double dipping because some of these people have sampled each other?
0: There's a list, <laughs> there's a list within all the list. Is built off of each other.
3: Right.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I think if you go up and down this list, you can like Trip just said. There's there's a list within the list. I bet too. Oh
1: yeah. Hmm.
2: And that is your top ten most sampled artists according to who dot com.
0: All right. Well, I got a couple of bonus ones. Uh, I, we asked our ambassadors, our passionate DJ ambassadors, if they had any that they wanted to bring in. And DJ Brains asked uh, how many re- remixes I could find of the Electric Slide. <laughs> 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 so I thought it was pretty funny. I, you know, that was really hard to answer. I couldn't really, I couldn't really find an answer to that. But. Um, I can tell you the official remixes I found. So the actual song name is uh, it's by Marcia Griffiths, and it's the Electric Boogie. Uh, the original release in '83 was on Mango Records, and according to Discogs, there was the long version, the or I'm sorry, the vocal version, the long vocal version, and then Dub One Instrumental, Dub Two Instrumental, Dub Three Instrumental. So there are at least five original versions, which was actually they were all remixes of (laughs) they're like remixes of remixes when they came out so it's kind of it's really difficult to answer but um wikipedia says in 83 she released her re-recording of the bunny whaler song electric boogie Originally recorded and released in 76, and although the 83 version became a minor hit for the Griffiths, the song was remixed in 1989, and this was the version that made the electric slide a line dance and international dance craze.
3: Boogie, woogie, reached,
0: woogie, woogie, woogie. Yeah, right. It's electric. <laughs> it reached number 51 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, making it her most successful single. It's currently the highest selling single by a female reggae, reggae singer of all time. Huh. Interesting. And then uh, Greg Lane wanted to know what the first fully produced electronic album was. And you want to talk about something that's hard to answer.
2: Yeah, it's going to be debatable.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. It's one of those. It's like, you know, just, just like, like the drum, drum machine. machine. It's like, well, it kind of depends on who you ask and what's an electronic album. I would say I would I
1: would go with Kraftwerk, something Kraftwerk, but I know that's not right.
0: A, a lot of people think Kraftwerk and a lot of people think um, uh, switched on Bach. But uh, th- the best answer that I could come up with was it was actually the soundtrack to the movie Forbidden Planet, which came out in 1956. It was composed by B.B. and Lewis, or Louis Barron, and I actually have a, a clip here. experimental kind of stuff it's very low sci-fi
1: theaters what it kind of you know stressing me out a star trek episode or something
0: (laughs) sounds
3: like something humpty vision played like three years ago no just
0: kidding (laughs) just kidding (laughs) and then then, uh uh factmag.com had another answer which was the? It was called the fascinating world of electronic music, and it was by Kid Bal, Kid Baltan and Tom Dissevelt. I think I'm saying that right. And actually, you may have heard this because there was a YouTube video that came out a few years ago, and it's titled something like Acid House from
1: 1958.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, so I'm gonna actually use that clip to run us out. So. This is the fascinating world of electronic music, and this has been the Passionate DJ Podcast. Thanks for the
3: words. Yeah, thank you.
0: <laughs> Let me try that again.
3: You alright there, buddy? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah.
1: Sound like the godfather. Sound <laughs> like so a godfather,
3: man. <laughs>